This is Carrot Stick, the podcast that looks at healthcare through the unblinking lens of data, gathering industry experts, partners, and others for casual chats on serious topics. With your host, Carrot Health founder and CEO, Kurt Waltenbau. 120 million, 120 million people. This is the number of people in the United States who struggle to afford housing. Many are only one or two missed paychecks away from being evicted. That's more than one third of the country. Join me for a conversation with Jason Chaplin on the new faces of homelessness, why this has grown into such an enormous crisis and the impacts on health and health equity. More importantly, we talk about what we can do to fix it. What concrete steps can we as health insurers, hospital systems, employers, and citizens do to improve the lives of those in our care? Jason is the Chief Strategy Officer for Community Health Center in Connecticut, one of the nation's largest federally qualified health centers providing healthcare to low-income families. In addition, Jason has a rich history in affordable housing and is passionate about the linkage between housing and health. Have a listen. So Jason, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Thank you for having me. Maybe uh, tell us a little bit about your, your background and what you're doing now. My background is a little bit of a jack of all trades and master of none. I have uh, spent my career moving in and out of private sector and government and the not-for-profit uh, world, hopefully bringing a little bit of experience from each to the other. For the last 20 years, I have been working exclusively in the not-for-profit world, and most of that, almost all of that, in homelessness, running some of the nation's largest uh, homeless organizations in New York, New, uh, New England, and Los Angeles. About a year and a half ago, I moved into healthcare serving low-income healthcare folks. And so you have a, a unique perspective with uh, the deep history on homelessness and housing and how it affects healthcare. Who, who needs housing? How has homelessness changed over the years? You know, you've nailed the, the, the question right out of the box. It, it really has changed. We used to think of homelessness as defined sort of by the Bowery bums in New York City, people with mental illness and substance abuse and sitting there, you know, drunk on sidewalks. And, and to be sure, mental illness and substance abuse is still a very prevalent outsized portion of homelessness, far outsized in the homeless population from the general population. But the face of homelessness has really changed. It is more often than not now, not driven by mental illness and substance abuse. It's purely economics people who simply can't make their life work. And I can certainly go into that in, in more detail, but the face of homelessness has changed, and I'm not sure uh, housing has caught up with that reality. So there's a strong poverty component that people who are unemployed, or does it also affect people who are working? Uh, it's both. Again, you've nailed it right out of, the, out of the gate. On the poverty side of it, there are actually two measures of poverty both official, both census-driven. Uh, one is called the official poverty, poverty measure, although they're both official, and one's called the supplemental measure of poverty. The latter, the SPM, supplemental measure of poverty, actually only started about 11, 12 years ago, 2009. And um, it's designed to be a more accurate portrayal of poverty. It, it takes into account things like cash benefits, such as social security or public assistance, things like SNAP, TANF. It takes into account unemployment insurance. And it also takes into account non-discretionary spending, things we have to spend money on, such as taxes and, and, and medical expenses. And there is a difference between the two. So, for instance, when you look at the poverty numbers and you look at people who are living at the poverty line or below, in the country today, 
the official poverty number, not the supplemental measure, is 34 million people are living uh, at poverty or below. The supplemental measure is actually 38.2 million. But that really jumps because, you know, that poverty number is still a very, very low number. Really, when we talk about housing, we talk about poverty, we should be talking about people who live either in poverty or in near poverty, which is within 50% of the poverty line or even 100% of the poverty line. And so when you look at people who live either in poverty or within 100% of the poverty line, the official poverty uh, number will tell you that's 85, 86 million people in the country. The supplemental measure of poverty is 126 million, 40 million more. And when you look at that supplemental measure of poverty, which is a more accurate measure, you're looking at almost 40% of the country, almost one out of two people living either in poverty or within 100% of the poverty line. And, and you know, that means when you're in 100% of the poverty line, it, it means you're one incident away from being in poverty. You're one illness away. You're one accident away. You're often one car repair away. You're one domestic violence incident away. And so those are the numbers we really should be looking at. And they're, they're pretty shocking. You know, after, after a decade of more now of, of strong economic growth, we have almost one out of two people, 40% of the country living in poverty or near poverty. And those are the people who are getting really, really squeezed on housing. Uh, and just finally there, you know, it's even worse because the rates for the disenfranchised, for Blacks, for Latinx population, are twice the rate of whites. That's, yeah, shocking. So 40% of the country is homeless or housing unstable, as we would call it within the, the Carrot Health data. And I think, you know, what, what you just touched on, the racial component, you know, we, we've published some data on that recently here in, in Minnesota, where we're headquartered. The housing unstable population affects the, the Black, uh, the BIPOC community, three times at higher rate than it does the white community in Minnesota. Is that typical in, in your work? Sure. Uh, uh, of course, you know, and, and uh, I realize I didn't touch on your employment numbers a little while ago, but I'm happy to go back to that if you want. But, but the, when you are housing unstable, it is directly tied to health outcomes directly tied to health outcomes. And when you look at homelessness, and again, I spent almost 20 years in, you know, in the field of serving the homeless, uh, medical illness or healthcare is directly tied to homelessness, both to reasons people become homeless, reasons they can't get out of homelessness, or reasons they fall back into homelessness. And some of those uh, uh, numbers are, are, are also brutal. I mean, when you look at uh, HIV AIDS, for instance, in the um, in, in the homeless population, three to six times, as, as you pointed out, three to six times the rate of, uh, of, of people who are not homeless and, and diabetes uh, and TB and wounds and things like that. These are, you know, these are definitely outside in, in the homeless population. So when, when people aren't housed or they're in an unstable uh, housing situation, what, what happens as a, as a family that, that impacts their health? What, what are the sort of things that you see that are different than the housed population? Well, when people aren't housed uh, and you look at families, as you just said, for instance, children who are homeless, uh, these statistics are all over the place. But generally, they're sick four times more often than children who are not homeless. 
They have three times the rate of behavioral or emotional problems, twice the rate of learning disabilities. And I've even seen some statistics out there that say if you are a homeless child in high school, uh, less than 25% of you graduate. That's shocking. So, you know, clearly people, the the fact that we have 40% of the country in this category is really exacerbating our, our health crisis, right? It's, it's causing more illness by the fact that people aren't housed in a stable situation. A hundred percent true. If you are not, you know, again, sometimes whether it's medical issues or behavioral uh, or mental health issues, sometimes it's the cause of homelessness. Sometimes it's the result of homelessness. And very often it's the barrier to getting out of homeless uh, homelessness. So there's a direct correlation uh, between homelessness and healthcare or housing and healthcare. And, and, you know, what we haven't even touched on are, you know, adverse childhood experiences and how that shows up later uh, in, in life for children uh, who are homeless um, when they're children. And, and that's what's so devastating uh, about all of this, because you, you realize that when a three or four or five or seven year old child is homeless, in many ways, not universally, not 100% by any stretch of the imagination, but we are starting that child out with two and a half strikes against them. They're either going to grow up into poverty, they're going to grow up into homelessness, or worse yet, in some cases, they're just not going to, they're not going to make it into adulthood. Um, and, uh, and, and even if they do, the trauma of having been homeless as a child and the adverse uh, childhood experiences uh, that come from that uh, stay with them decades after they were homeless. You told me a story along those lines about some intergenerational homelessness that you observed. What what, what does that look like? Well, you know, that's exactly what we're getting at. Uh, you know, it, it, if you are a child who is homeless and, and you look at the stats that I just told you about, I mean, who are we kidding? When when less than 25% of you graduate from high school, when you have three times the rate of behavioral and emotional problems, twice the rate of learning disabilities and are sick four times more often, you're going to grow up either into poverty or in homelessness. And we see that in the homeless, uh, in the homeless world. Uh, I used to run a, a program that had both a single women's shelter and a family shelter, different programs. And it wasn't uncommon at all for someone to come in and say, I was here as a child and now I'm back here with my child as a mother and a child. That was very common. And it wasn't even uncommon and not quite as common as what I just said, but it wasn't uncommon to occasionally see a single grandmother in our single women's shelter, her daughter and her granddaughter in our family program. Three generations. And you think, you know, we're just perpetuating the cycle of poverty, intergenerational poverty and intergenerational homelessness. We've all thought, we all know about intergenerational poverty. It's also intergenerational homelessness if we don't actually tackle these underlying causes of homelessness and if we don't deal with the impacts of people who are homeless very quickly, especially with children and families. And going, going back to your uh, earlier comment that you know, many families in that $120 million are one financial crisis away of, of being homeless, right? They're in an unstable situation. They don't have enough savings to weather a layoff or, a, or an illness. So clearly, the last 12 months, the pandemic is making this worse. Uh, even though we've put some moratoriums on, on paying for paying rent and so forth, those debts are going to come due, right? So this is just accelerating rapidly. You know, the, uh, yes, we are, 
we're holding off a tidal wave, but that doesn't mean it's not a tidal wave that's going to eventually hit. Um, today, 38 million U.S. households, one in three, struggle with housing costs that jeopardize their financial security. 16 million households already pay more than 50% of their income for housing, already do that. There are 30 to 40 million renters, that's 30 to 40% of all renters, who as of December 2020, were at risk of eviction. That's a tidal wave that is going to come and hit. The moratoriums are absolutely necessary. They're critical. They're important. They are holding off a disaster. But it doesn't mean that if you were at risk of eviction in September because you owed $3,000, you now owe $6,000. The moratorium is not getting rid of the fact that you owe $6,000. It just means you can't be evicted until COVID has ended or January or February, depending on when the moratorium ends in your state. Once the moratorium ends, that debt is still there and those evictions are going to come. And I think we are looking at a wave of, uh, of evictions coming at us. And again, when you look at the people, uh, people who are both unable to pay rent on time or at slight or no confidence in their ability to pay rent on time, here are some of those numbers. One quarter of black renters, one quarter of Latinx renters, one quarter of renters with children are already unable to pay their rent on time. Those are July numbers. They're probably north of there now. Four out of 10 African-Americans, five out of 10, one out of two Latinx renters, and four and a half out of 10 renters with children already have slight or no confidence in their ability to pay rent on time, meaning they're, they're about to fall into that unable to pay rent category. And in both of those two sets of numbers, again, Black and Latinx renters are twice the rate of whites, and renters with children are twice the rate of renters without children. So it's a disproportionate impact on how this is hitting the country. And the moratoriums are, are, are great, but I want to make sure we put it in perspective. All it means is those people are going to become homeless or are going to get evicted when COVID isn't an issue. That means they're just going to be evicted in a normal bad health situation. Um, and that's very important that it's not happening in the, in the midst of COVID, but it's, but it's not solving um, the underlying problem uh, of, of housing and, again, the impact on healthcare, meaning diabetes, heart disease, things like that. It just means you won't be, you won't, they won't happen in the middle of a pandemic. They're still going to happen. Right. No, exactly. So, I, I mean, we've established that this is a massive problem and it's growing rapidly That and that there are incredible downstream impacts to health and employment and family and other things just by virtue of, of being homeless or housing unstable. And it affects almost half the country, somewhere between a third and a half of the country. And of course, that the pandemic is making this worse. So clearly this is a problem. So Maybe let's shift a little bit to the, what do we do? Why isn't there enough housing? Why, why is it too expensive? Well, we, we, we can certainly come to that, uh, and that's the underlying question. Um, but I, I think even you know, going into it, the context of what you just said is really important. The, the percentages, the, the ratios of people who are struggling. And the thing is, it's not only people without jobs. Yes, you know, when, we, when, we, uh, uh, when COVID hit in, in, in sort of March of, of, of last year, 
at that point, there were 152 million jobs in the country. Today, we're still 10 million shy of that. We lost 25 million jobs. We pulled back 15, but 10 million less jobs in the country. Uh, and the unemployment rate um, you know, has also uh, you know, almost doubled from, from where we were. But it's the long-term unemployment rate. And I'm going to come back to your question in just a second. That's really worrisome. In February of 2020, long-term unemployment, which is defined as meaning you've been unemployed, it's within the unemployment number, 27 weeks or longer. So in February 2020, of the people who were unemployed, 19.2% have been unemployed for 27 weeks or longer. In December, that number had doubled to 37.1%. So 37.1% of people who have been unemployed, who are unemployed, have been unemployed for 27 weeks or longer. And that long-term unemployment is a leading indicator of those eviction numbers or those at-risk of eviction numbers that we talk to. And, and that's the unemployed. There's also a flip side to that, Kurt, and that's that even people who are working, even people who are working can't afford rent anymore because of what you just talked about, affordable housing. Today, as I mentioned a little earlier, you know, homelessness used to be about mental illness or substance abuse. Now it's just increasingly about economics. You may not be mentally ill. You may not be substance abuse. You may not have a job, but you might also have a job. Very often, you have a job but you can't stop yourself from falling into homelessness or getting out of homelessness. And that's really sobering because the working poor have given way to the working homeless. Let me repeat that again and just let it sink in. The working poor have given way to the working homeless. When, we were, when I was running homeless programs, we ran workforce education programs. We had job vocational training programs. We had job placement agencies all within the same you know, set of companies. We had people who we were training in job sectors that were growing. They got jobs paying, working 40 hours a week. And our average starting wage was 28% above the minimum wage. And there was no chance for them to get out of homelessness. There was no apartment they could have, they could afford. So think about that. We just said, do everything we tell you to do. Go get job trained. Go to the job, you know, the workforce educate, workforce job placement service we offer. Get a job. Work 40 hours a week. Don't even make minimum wage. Make 28% above minimum wage. And they come back and say, well, what on earth do I need to do to get out of homelessness? Because I just did everything you told me to do. Wait, so you're saying if, if someone gets a job at $15 an hour, so they're making $30,000 a year, they, can't, they still can't afford a house in many locations? Well, yes, exactly. And let's look at that number really specifically. And I, I am going to take the, you know, some of the higher cost areas um, in, in, to do this, but they're illustrative. Take San Francisco. Number one, number two, high cost area in the country. But, but it's true in New York. It's true in Stanford, Connecticut. It's true in Minneapolis where, where you are. The fair market rate for a studio apartment, and by the way, Good luck finding an FMR, fair market rate apartment. Good luck finding it. Let's just, let's just for the hell of it, pretend they exist. They cost $2,014 a month. In order for you not to spend more than 30% of your income on rent, you need to earn $38.73 an hour or $80,566 a year or 2.6 times. 2.6, forget 28% more. 2.6 
times the minimum wage. And that's the FMR number, Kurt. Let's, let's get real. The, the, the actual average rent, I happen to know that number. It's $2,461 for an average studio in, in San Francisco. You need to earn $98,500, just shy of that, a year. You need to earn $47.33 an hour or 3.2 times the minimum wage. And gosh forbid, you are a family with two children. If you needed a two or one child, if you have a two-bedroom apartment, the average rent is $4,377 a month. That's very high, I understand, but this applies across the country. Your required income, just to spend 30% of your income on rent, is $175,000 or $84 an hour or 5.6 times the minimum wage. Now, yes, that's a high-end situation, but this is illustrative of what's happening throughout the country. You can earn way more than the minimum wage and still not be able to afford rent. So, all right. So in San Francisco, unless I make six figures as a single person, I'm housing unstable. Unless you make six figures, um, you are paying more than 30% of your rent, of your income to rent. And that now starts to impact everything else you need in life from clothing to food, to, to medicines, to things like that, to, to insurance that's not covered by work and all of that. And if I'm a family, I need $175,000 a year income. Now, Clearly, this is San Francisco. So if I go to Omaha or I go to you know some other Minneapolis or or some other town, does that does that get better? It must get better. I, I, the numbers drop, but not not to where they need to. Like like I said, you know, uh, at, at the homeless program that I used to run, we had people who were earning twenty eight percent. I'm going to do it, you know from the from the bottom side up. We had people who were earning twenty eight percent above the minimum wage. You think that's pretty good. They had no chance of getting out of homelessness. They were nowhere close to being able to afford a studio in Stamford, Connecticut. Uh, nowhere close. And that's true, you know, almost everywhere through the nation. You will see that even if you earn that minimum wage. And so, you know, here's the, here's the, the, the dirty little secret. It's, 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 it's devastatingly simple. To be housed, to afford housing, one of two things needs to happen, right? You either need to earn enough money to afford that house, that market rate house, or the market rate house has to drop in price. Either the price of rent has to drop or we have to pay more to get there. So, you know, we can talk about $15 minimum wages across the nation, and I think that's a great start, and I'm all in favor of it. But still, literally, unless we get to $20, $25 minimum wages, in, a, in many of these places, and that's going to kill business. That's going to kill small businesses. Unless we get to that, people can't afford the rent. There's this dislocation. So either the either people earn more so they can afford what the rent is, or the rent comes down so they can afford it on their existing salary. But if we don't figure out how to fix that, um, we're going to see more and more people you know, struggling with homelessness and, and couch surfing or housing unstable. And keep in mind, when you are housing unstable or if you are not yet evicted and you are still in your house, but you know that you are not able to make the rent, you know the eviction is coming, you don't know how long it's going to be or when it's going to be, the stress of that alone, you know better than anybody at Carrot Health, the stress of that alone leads to hypertension, leads to heart issues, leads to uh, mental health issues, and, and has a huge impact on health outcomes, 
which, by the way, we then end up paying for on the healthcare system side of things. Oh, absolutely. We, you know, we see it all all day long in terms of the ability to manage your disease, the ability to take care of your health, the ability to, you know, go to the pharmacy and pick up your insulin and and refrigerate it and take it on time. Like all of those things drop off dramatically once someone is in a housing unstable situation, uh, let alone homelessness. And and the costs to the health system are massive. So. All right. So there are two solutions. We can pay people more, which probably, you know, you and I can't affect today, uh, or we can provide housing at cheaper rates. How do we do that? And that's that's where we have to do it, because even um, even if you get to fifteen dollars, it's, it's not the answer. You just saw that with some of the San Francisco numbers. But but even in other cities, the ones you mentioned, you know, fifteen dollars may not to do it, may not do it. The way we have to do it is make housing affordable by bringing down the cost of housing. And I do think there is a way to do that. Um, uh, it has to go with getting what's known as the capital stack, right? The financing, right? Um, but here's the other thing, you know, until we do that, what's happening is, is really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, um, it's almost self-fulfilling or, 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 or truly debilitating to the system. When you think about someone who falls into homelessness, here's what happens. They're on the street or they come into shelter. Then they move into transitional housing. And then there's this huge Grand Canyon-like jump that people are meant to make into affordable housing. And on the other, end of that, the other side of that uh, on the spectrum is market rate housing. The trouble is that gap between transitional housing and affordable housing is too far for most people to jump. And here's the other thing. Cities talk about building affordable housing, right? We, we talk about affordable housing all the time. Here's a dirty little secret about affordable housing. It is targeted to people earning 50 to 60 to sometimes even 80% of what's known as area median income, AMI. Sometimes an area median income, a city is within an area. So take Stamford, Connecticut, where I used to work, surrounded by places like Greenwich and New Canaan and, and Darien, high costs of living, so people are homeless. The area median income can be one thing, but the city median income is very different. So people who are at 50% of the area median income are actually at 80% of Stanford's median income or city's median income, which means when we talk about building affordable housing at 50 to 60%, it doesn't, it, 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 you're talking about building it where people have to earn 80% of AMI to afford it. That's not many people are doing that. Not many people can afford that. And on top of which, when you're earning 30% of AMI, 35% of AMI, 25% of AMI, those are the numbers closer to the minimum wage numbers. Even if I put you on a list for affordable housing, even if you wait two years to get off of it, three years to get off of it, when your time comes, guess what the landlord does? He jumps over you to the guy who's making 50% of the area median income. Why? Because that person's more likely to make the rent. And if I want to be politically incorrect, um, the, the person's probably looks right for the building. And, and what happens is they'll say, they'll find some way to, to jump over you. You had a credit card problem three years ago. Well, of course I had a credit card problem three years ago. I'm homeless. I stopped paying my credit card bill before I stopped paying my rent. Of course I do. So now they skip over you. You can't get into affordable housing. And now what happens? You're stuck in the homeless system. 
And what we end up doing is we put you in, after years of waiting, we'll put you into permanent supportive housing, which is very expensive, cheaper than leaving on the street, very expensive. But the thing is, guess what? You, you, you don't need permanent supportive housing. You just needed a place you could afford. You can afford $1,000 for rent. You just can't afford $1,500 a month for rent. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. So let's talk more about that gap. So tr- describe who can afford transitional housing and who's that targeted to? And then what's that missing piece between transitional and affordable? Well, transitional housing is shelter, essentially. Transitional housing is you're still in housing. It's just you can be up there in, in that kind of a program for two years. Um, affordable housing, is, it's, market, it's not market rate housing. It's, it's um, you pay rent, but you pay um, a set number, but it's, it is targeted typically for people, as I said, at 50 to 60 to 80% of the area median income. So if you are earning $20,000 a year, let's say 20% of the AMI, and I'm, uh, uh, and I'm earning $50,000, who do you think the landlord is going to take, even if you're ahead of me on the list? They see you earning $20,000. They see me earning $50,000. They think I'm more likely to pay the rent, which is a reduced rent, but they think I'm more likely to pay the rent. They, they jump over you to me and people like you get left behind in the homeless shelter, even though you're working and you could have afforded rent. You just can't afford the market rate. Um, so what we have to do is build deeply affordable housing. So, so you, you've done this before, right? You've gone in and you've built housing in that, that sort of middle gap area. You talk about getting the capital stack right. You've done this without outside capital, without government funding. What does that, what does that cap, what does capital stack mean? And, and how do you address the problem here? Well, first of all, you start by thinking, who are we really trying to build housing for? And what we try, what we've called it, and it's a new, it's a new concept in affordable housing. It recognizes it's changing and addresses this changing face of homelessness. And it fills that devastating gap between transitional housing and typical affordable housing. We call it deeply affordable housing. And we're targeting those people who are earning an income. They're earning minimum wage to maybe 150% of minimum wage. Um, and it's the people in the 25 to 35% of area median income rather than the 50 to 60%. So it's a different type of person um, we're building the housing for. And the thing about deeply affordable housing that, that is um, sort of its genius is it addresses both the front end and the back end of homelessness at the same time. It stops people from falling into homelessness because when they lose their apartment, take a single mom living in a studio with her kids, she's paying $1,000 a month, and all of a sudden the landlord comes to her and says, you know, starting next month is $1,500 a month. And the, the mom says, I'm clearing 100 bucks a month. I, I can't afford that. Um, you can have my hundred bucks, but you can't, I don't have the 1500 and she's on the street. But if we built housing for her at a thousand dollars, she wouldn't be. That's what this does. It stops people from falling into homelessness. And for that person who's earning 25, 50% of minimum wage, working 40 hours a week, like I described earlier, they did everything we told them to. This is their way out of homelessness on the back end. To do it, you have to Get the financing right, the capital stack right, so that you can build the building and charge rents that are still just a third of what typical market rates would be. Uh, and we did this in Stanford. We built a building that is 46,000 square feet, 53 units in this building. 
But here's the key. 26 of them were studios, but 17 of them were two bedrooms for families. And 10 of them were three bedrooms for families. And then we also thought, who are we talking about? We're talking about a lot of single moms very often, sometimes single dads, but single moms, in, in, single parents in those uh, two and three bedrooms. We built an early Head Start program in the building, in the basement. So there's daycare on site. We got the capital stack right so that we didn't have to, in the end, we actually didn't even have to take on debt to build this building. We were able to get it done through uh, some private donations, financing in something called fee of lieu money. I I can speak to that in a minute. But you can take on debt. When we started building this building, we thought we're going to need to raise $3 million. We can finance $5 million of it. And with the rents that are coming in, we can pay that debt on the $5 million. The secret in doing this, though, is to keep your cost of construction as low as you can. Doesn't mean it's not a good-looking building. This building, beautiful floors, beautiful cabinetry, granite um, countertops. You know, it's gorgeous. But we kept the price low in, in part because we didn't trigger what's known as prevailing wages. When you take government money, you almost always trigger prevailing wages. There are some pockets where you don't have to but you almost always trigger prevailing wages. I built another building 200 yards away from this building I just talked about. Except that was only 36,000 square feet. It had no school in it. It was 40 studios and eight one bedrooms, much smaller. That building, and I owned the land, cost $17.5 million, meaning $17.5 million without the land because we took government money and we triggered prevailing wages. The other building, the first building, Cost just under $8 million, of which $1.7 million was spent on buying land. So triggering prevailing wages is not all of that difference, but a huge part of that difference. And when you keep that, that cost to build low, and you can finance at very low rates today, especially for this type of housing, because you can get Community Reinvestment Act money um, and things like that, um, you can keep your rents low. Even with debt. So the, the, this, uh, this building I was talking about, our studios cost $491 a month instead of $1,500 a month. The two bedrooms cost $735 a month instead of $2,500 a month. And the three bedrooms cost uh, just over $800 a month instead of $3,500 a month. And the building breaks even from day one. No vouchers, nothing. So you you built that with half the cost, but less than half the cost of uh, a traditional development right next door, uh, and were able to to create uh, rents, create more housing, create rents that dropped the price to the point where they're affordable to people making twenty to thirty percent more than minimum wage. That's incredible. That it can be done, and it takes look. It takes creativity. It takes innovation. It takes uh, collaboration. So, you know, the way we did this is we saw a plot of land. It happened to be on a dead end street. We asked the city to discontinue the street because we were everything on the street at this point. There was this tiny little parking lot that the city owned next to it. And we said, if you're going to give us the street, why don't you just give us the parking lot? And when we bought the bookend lot on the other side, we consolidated it into one package. We told the city, if we're going to build this for you, we're not going to pay property tax. We're taking all these people off the street and we're not for profit. So we don't pay property tax. 
And, and, and the mayor looked at me and said, but I'm losing money. I could make money on that. And I said, yes, and I could also put 125 people on the street. And that would cost you a lot more money, wouldn't it? Well, he, he didn't even finish the sentence when he said, you, you're right. We'll do it. We got donations for $2.5 million. We put together some other kind of financing, but we could have taken on debt. We could have taken on debt at a commercial rate. You go to a bank that has the obligations to pay Community Reinvestment Act money, they have to give you low rates. They have to do this by law. They have to get a certain number of credits per year, and they do this by issuing low rates, and all of a sudden you can put it together. But if I had built that building with, 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 with government money, I would have had to pay a lot more for, for construction. And by the way, I, I want to be clear, this isn't about you know, driving people to the bottom on, on, who are building the building, right? We don't want that. I'm just talking about the guy who holds a stop sign, that, you know, the stop go sign or something like that, doesn't need to make $60 an hour to do that. I'm making up numbers here, but you, know, you don't need to make those numbers. All we're saying is don't tie our hands from the, all the other developers in town who are, who are building with their own money or building with, with commercial money who are paying market rates for, for labor. Just let us pay market rates for labor. That's that. That makes a lot of sense. And it. it so if I could summarize this whole thread, it's. It kind of sounds like there isn't enough housing, and it's too expensive because there isn't enough housing. And if we can just create more housing, more is more. The prices go down, and we can make this affordable in a way that it's. Uh, it, it hasn't been historically. It's been pricing more and more people out of the market. A hundred percent correct. And, and here's the thing. If we don't do this, we put people into permanent supportive housing. And what are those? There are three words in that statement. Permanent housing with supportive in the middle. The trouble is permanent supportive housing was for the old face of homelessness, mental illness, substance abuse, other disabilities. To be sure, we still need it. We still need a lot of it. We need it for people who are mentally ill, who are substance abusing, who have other disabilities who, 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 who need it. But a large part of the people the majority of people who are homeless today are not those who are mentally ill, substance abusing, or, or, or other diseases and disabilities. And yet, if we don't build this type of housing, the only, type of, only way they can get into housing or get out of homelessness is permanent supportive housing, which they don't need and which is really expensive. So this same building that I just spoke about, if we had built it as permanent supportive housing, forget the fact that it would have cost a lot more to build and the government would have had to pay for it. But just the ongoing subsidies that would have been necessary if only half of the units in that building had a subsidy, not even the full building, not even the full building. If only half had it, over 20 years, that would have cost the government almost $11 million in ongoing subsidies instead of zero. And the way we built it instead, it costs the government zero in ongoing subsidies, and it actually makes money for the not-for-profit. It actually makes f almost $5 million over 20 years, which that not-for-profit uses to fund programs. Well, and that's, and clearly, we're not going to create permanent supportive housing for 120 million people in this country, right? That's just not the direction we're going down. We need to create a way that the market can fund housing that people can afford. And I think this, this is where this conversation is fascinating to me, because as, as we work with health payers and providers and, and employers and others who are all asking how do we solve this problem for our members and our patients and our employees? 
in my mind, this model that you described is a great way for those entities to help intervene in their communities. Health insurance companies have money to invest in housing projects. I don't think they know that it's possible to do what you're what you're talking about. Same with self-insured employers. There are many employers that have employees in these wage categories and their employees can't find places to live. Well, that makes it really hard to recruit employees. It makes it hard to make productive employees and keep them. Uh, not to mention the healthcare costs that those individuals incur down the road. So if we if we can create a, a way that they can pay for these things and save money down the road from healthcare costs, everybody wins, and we can solve this housing crisis for once and for all. You you are absolutely right. You are you are a hundred percent correct. We need to figure out a way first of all to make housing affordable for people who are not in need of permanent supportive housing. That those tens and tens and tens of millions of people in that $125 million million category that we just talked about. And there are pots of money. It's just that people have not realized that the face of homelessness has changed. And when they do realize it, they're still trying to apply the same old models to a different population. They're applying affordable housing at 50 or 60%, or they're applying permanent supportive housing. And they are using old models to try and fix a different face of homelessness, a changed face of homelessness. And there are ways to finance this outside of government. You nailed it. Health insurance companies, Kaiser Permanente, in 2018, launched a $200 million fund. United Healthcare, a $300 million fund, launched, I think, around 2011. Anthem, $380 million. JP Morgan, $500 million, a $500 million commitment to corporate social responsibility. In, in September 2018. And then there are, you know, from the banks again, there's also um, Community Reinvestment Act, uh, where they have to get credits. And this is the way they get credits. They make loans, cheap loans. Instead of at 3%, they do it at, you can get them at 1, 1.5%. And that means you can take on a lot more debt to build that $10 million building because it's only costing you 1.5 points, right? And if you can take on a lot more debt, you have to raise just a little bit more money, which you can raise from that healthcare company or that corporate social responsibility initiative. Or how about foundations? I mean, even even just uh, you know uh, Jeff Bezos in 2018, you know, two billion dollars, and he's done a lot more since then. But two billion for affordable housing. How about deeply affordable housing? And then there's tax credits. There are opportunities zone tax credits. There are low-income housing tax credits. And even though those are tax credits and they smack government, very often those don't trigger prevailing wages. There are pockets of government money. While most government money triggers prevailing wages, sometimes bonding money, sometimes tax credit money, sometimes 9% tax credits in the low-income housing tax credit program don't necessarily trigger prevailing wages. The trick is to not trigger prevailing wages. And you can do that by either tax credits, foundations, healthcare companies, banks, and all of it will pay an ROI many, many, many multiples of what is invested in terms of savings on health outcomes down the road, short-term, and even more long-term when you're talking about families and children. I love it. Jason, I love your your passion and your vision on this topic is is superb. And it really just, uh, it's so energizing to see an actual solution to some of the things that we've been highlighting in the data for many years. Uh, and I hope we can uh, we can continue this conversation. Thank you for joining us here this afternoon. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for having me.